Hello, it's Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. That's I'm right. That's right. And uh, it's also Kim Stanley Robinson's birthday. It is. Happy birthday to Stan, the author of, among other books, Shaman, the book that we're reading in this season of the Kim Stanley Robinson Read Along <laughs> podcast, Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. Yeah. Uh, happy birthday to Stan, uh, who is in many ways the author of this podcast. <laughs> No, I would say in no way at all is he the author of this podcast. We're the author, the co-authors of the podcast. He's the subject of the podcast. Oh. Or is he the object that, of the podcast? I can't You don't think remember. he's the author of it in some way? I mean, maybe in some mystical way, like, you know, Mother Earth's cave Colby is the oh. author of the... <laughs> animals that issue from it and bless the wolf pack with uh, meat and fur and whatnot. I mean, the podcast wouldn't exist without Stan. Well, I mean, in that regard, uh, Jeff Bezos is the author of the podcast because uh, without uh, Amazon web services, That's this true. probably would never be distributed. So it's true. Happy birthday to Jeff Bezos. The guiding light of our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who has, has blessed us with server farms. Speaking of light, happy birthday to Thomas Edison, who without his light bulbs, we wouldn't even have electricity to do the podcast. So in, in many ways, isn't wow. Benjamin Franklin the author of the podcast? <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, the first podcaster, poor Richard Zalmanac, the first podcast. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Vicious poster, Benjamin Franklin. Poor Rich's Almanac, full of sayings, just like Shaman by Kim Stanley Robinson is full of uh, sayings that uh, are pass along knowledge from generation to generation. Interesting. Pithy little phrases that allow one to remember important uh, concepts and ideas and just, you know, life ways and things that are handy to, to walk around with and keep in mind. Uh, that's great. That's great. That's a really nice, <laughs> nice way to describe it. <laughs> well, I am on one today, clearly. Well, um, that's good. That's good. I spend the morning um, doing grading for my my winding up my class this winding up last quarter's class and thinking about next quarter's class. Um, so I'm like a little brain dead. Okay. Um, Not that that's unusual. No, I mean, I, uh, what? Yes. Yes. I went for a long walk in the, uh, woods in the bird sanctuary near my, uh, apartment and, um, it was very muddy and still icy at, and, and I listened to, by the way, I listened to the audio version of that, um, 20 types of human, uh, essay from the London review of books. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a review of the book Kindred. Mm -hmm. And I forget the author's name of both the review and the book. But Lanchester. John Lanchester is the person who wrote the review. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. I was listening to that while walking through the woods and I was pretending to be a Neanderthal and all that kind of stuff. And it was very fun, but I did almost, you know, I was sliding on the, some of it was extremely icy and I oh, was wow. like, it would probably be bad if I slipped and fell and, uh, broke a limb or a leg or hit my head on a rock. So after that, I was a little bit more careful, but it was still, it was still, um, energetic. Well, that's, that's nice. It's nice. You got out and, um, did something. It's true (laughs) (laughs) for a change. Hey, something we did last week was an event for shred magazine, which, uh, launched, uh, a new online space. So we wanted to again, thank Sean Estelle and the folks at shred magazine, as well as Daniel Aldana Cohen, who joined us in a conversation of Kim Stanley Robinson and his, uh, and his work. Yeah. Um, that conversation's on YouTube if anybody would like to watch it. And uh, it was really fun. It was so fun. It was really, really fun. And it it was, um, I was a little, I was a little caught off guard that they, uh, that they talked about like our podcast as a thing that, I mean, even though I know that they both listen to the podcast for some reason, I was kind of like, why are you guys talking about the podcast? I don't understand. Uh, but it we was- We live a- rent free in their head, Hillary. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Cause I, you know, I just, I just don't really think of us as having like any, um, well, I don't know. I, I, I still just really think like, oh, we have these conversations and then people like randomly listen to it. Um, mm-hmm. and so you have no imaginary of people listening and then having a picture of us or thinking that we like do a thing. I, I I don't even know how to quite say this, um, but it was a very fun conversation with them and just nice to talk um, with people who I think come at these books from really different angles than we do. Um, but uh, I mean, not that we always come from the same angle, but like, uh, yeah, it was just like, it was fun to talk with them. And it was definitely one of those, the rare sort of like, oh, you're doing like a you know, a recorded event of some time that at the end, I kind of felt like, oh, but wait, we could keep talking. Yeah. We just got started. (laughs) We had just got, yeah. Well, I made, I think afterwards I was like, we should have more Mm. guests. We should have more, i.e. some guests on the show every once in a while, because that was actually really fun to get um, third and fourth perspectives on the books that we've been talking about. Yeah. And also the idea that we have a podcast that has an audience that listens to it and then certain things that we say make impressions on them that they oh, remember yeah. or that yeah. they enjoy hearing is like, uh, I guess it's also, it's that, it, it, yeah, I mean, it is, it's a thing that, um, you know, you teach when you teach things like movies and novels is that um, the author of the text is not the creator of the text. The person who creates the text is the author and the recipient or the reader or the listener or the viewer in conversation at the moment of reception, that's where the text gets made. And so to be confronted with another person who was co-making the text that we make, that we did we had never met before, that was uh cool. I'll say I'll call I'll say it's cool. Yeah, it was it was cool. It was funny. Um and you know I just kept thinking like, but you know, obviously you all could have had all of these ideas without ever having listened to us say anything at all, you know, but I do sometimes think like, you know, just like in, like in a class discussion, like part of your function as the teacher, your function as the teacher is not to be like, you know, the brilliant, most important person in the room. 
It's just uh -oh. to do this thing. I'm sorry to tell you that. <laughs> I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> it's just to do this thing that allows people, um, you know, gives people like the, the space and the sort of permission to talk about something, you know, mm. um, and that like, uh, and in, and in that way, you kind of like, I think often your best case scenario as a teacher is to just sort of like disappear, you know, mm -hmm. like, which doesn't mean you don't say anything. It just means like that what you're trying to do is like, you know, find a way that a group of people can be creating something together. Mm -hmm. And obviously yeah. the podcast works differently because like when people listen to us, presumably either we are like, you know, just making a noise like in the kitchen while they wash the dishes or they are having a conversation or an argument with us in their heads right. or they're having a conversation or, you know, an argument with the novel yeah. in their heads and saying like, oh yeah, 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 exactly. Like <laughs> that, like that, you know, um, but I do, but, but, you know, like I, I, uh, podcasts like do that for me you know I right. listen to podcasts and I like have images in my mind of the people who are doing the podcasting and I like you know uh like things they say and object to other things and ignore other things but it is like part of like it does have a kind of function in letting me like think about things so I don't know it's fun to like experience that with some people who've listened yes. to us for sure yeah um, and also maybe Shred Magazine might be cool. I'm sure it is cool for sure because of the cool people who are involved in making it uh, and who <laughs> asked us to be on there yes. during their launch week. And there's so, no sure sign of being cool than asking us to do something. <laughs> that's right. I, I don't know why you're laughing because that's absolutely, that's how I judge whether people are cool as if they can stand to be around me for more than 15 <laughs> minutes. Um, okay. So um, uh, thank you to shred magazine again, and go ahead. Uh, the, I'll put the link in the, to their, to the YouTube recording of our conversation in the uh, show notes as well. Um, so we're uh, going to talk about the third and fourth sections chapters of shaman today, which is Elga and the hunger spring. Mm -hmm. um, and, but first we want to go dip back to uh, some stuff we left on the, uh, uh, on the table from last week, which was when uh, the Wolverine leads Heather to a wounded Neanderthal man. Yes. Uh, which is a really like um, this, this section. So this is, um, it starts on page uh, one oh. It starts on page one oh nine, um, but this section, like the section with the camp cat, um, does some really um, nice uh, sort of perspective shifting, and nice because it like takes animal perspective seriously, but also um, because it takes that perspective seriously, it does kind of put you the reader into like a world in which animals are our relatives um, mm -hmm. and would themselves be making sense of the world in the way, in, in ways that are comparable to, if not identical to the ways that human animals make sense of the world. Um, which I think is a really, like, I love, I love that part of this chapter and we get this really great um, uh, 
uh, great bit on page 110 um, as the Wolverine is kind of like walking, walking around doing its like uh, sol- solitary ruling of its little piece of the world. Um, uh, the Wolverine stops and sniffs, then smelled one of the long-headed humans who were mostly heavier and slower than the ones from the Warren and mostly lived toward the sunset except for some solitaries. Um, and so uh, the 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 Wolverine, we've already met the old ones um, because when Luna's on his wander, he sees a couple of them and has to hide from them. Um And so we know that they represent, you know, that they are like different and threatening and represented as a kind of kin, um, but a distant kin to the human, to the humans of the novel. Um, They seem to be understood to be human, but they speak a radically different language than um, our humans who we're hanging out with. And they look really different. And at least for Loon, when he's out on his wander, they're frightening. And they seem to have a frightening quality that's often associated with the people they call um, uh, woodsmen, mm-hmm. um, who are people who are living by themselves. Mm-hmm. And we we learn a little bit more about that in the section of the book. Um, for today, people have been cast out of their packs for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, so one of the reasons that the old ones seem interesting is because this is like um we're thinking here about a world in which one could encounter human others who were a different kind of human than you right a very strange kind of relationship to imagine um and another reason that they're interesting is because we often see them and in particular this one who we meet here we see them as as solitaries um Mm-hmm. And that in this world is quite a, it, it, thinking about solitude and being solitary um, and why one, you know, wants to be with a pack and why one sometimes doesn't want to be with a pack, right? The place of like um, being with others in human life, I think is a really important part of the book. And it kind of marks a, a theme for these two chapters that we have today, because uh, we're going to see the big gathering, the eight, eight. Um, the the big gathering uh, of humans. We're going to see one solitary wanderer later on. Um, so anyway, that dynamic seems important. And then I really love the um, as Wolverine and the this uh, this old one encounter each other. And Wolverine uh, smell smells him and thinks that he's notices that he's desperate. Right, he's trying to catch Wolverine. Um, And then the human whistled a perfect imitation of a female Wolverine's hello. Wolverine startled at first, then impressed, stepped closer to see if the human would do it again. He did, a truly inviting hello. The long-headed humans were really good vocal mimics. Wolverine had heard that before. Now this one shifted into a whistle like a lark's, liquid and burbling. Again, very impressive. Wolverine sat up on his haunches like a big marmot, settling in to hear more. The human whistled and hummed for quite some time, giving Wolverine the calls of several birds and animals and even the wet smack of a beaver tail on the water. Finally, it quit. Um, So I, you know, this is both an interesting, uh, interesting idea that they're, that the, um, the old ones have this imitative capacity and their language, which is made up of, that sounds to, to our humans like uh, clicks and whistles um seems to be 
constructed in ways that are maybe closer to animal sounds, right? Or allows for greater facility with imitating animal sounds. Mm -hmm. And then I also love just the perspective of Wolverine here, like not fooled, but quite intrigued by this capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I love this scene as like this kind of scene of encounter between like, um, two kinds of highly intelligent um, and yet radically different creatures who are mm-hmm. both communicating and not communicating uh, mm-hmm. with each other. I, I think this is just like a really awesome moment. Yeah, it's it's the there is this kind of I wonder though about so then so the Wolverine um, then encounters Heather and beckons Heather to follow Wolverine and and Heather follows him it and. Um, and then uh, she she meets this Neanderthal man who later is, his name is Click. His name is the name given to him is Click. Um, and then so she gets um, Thorn and Loon and Hawk to come and help him out, and and they build like a kind of shelter over them and bring him him and bring him some food and 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 nurse him back to health. I listening to the Lanchester review of this Kindred book is fascinating though because it makes me feel like. In here in Shaman, there's a kind of a, a kind of um, continuum or something from the human on one end to like pure animality on the other end, mm. and that Neanderthals are somewhere in between. Whereas the review um, makes it clear that that's you know I mean that that's a a human centric way an anthropocentric way of looking at it, especially a homo sapiens centric way of looking at it. Whereas there was likely a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, communal activity between not only Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, but all other hominins um, throughout that historical period, like the prehistorical period. Um, So like, whereas Click, and later on in the chapters we'll read today, Click does get his own chapter from his own perspective. So he is, you know, given um, given a fully fleshed out sort of perspective and character. Yet at the same time, there is this kind of definite attempt to sort of keep him at arm's length from the wolf pack and like the, the homo sapiens as well to like emphasize the, the difference in ways that um, you know, um, are worth thinking about in, in relation to kind of paleoanthropology um, as we know it as well. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's true, right, that for a long time, um, it was thought that um, the Neanderthals and modern humans, Homo sapiens, had no, didn't right. interact with each other at all, right? Right. Um, and in particular, didn't, uh, you know, didn't breed with, mm-hmm. <laughs> with each other. Right. Um, uh, and also wasn't it thought for like a certain amount of time that Neanderthals had effectively died out prior to Homo sapiens. Right. Um, and then, so there's a really like, you know, it's, it's a, a significant change in the way that we like picture and like Lanchester talks about this in that in that piece about that book, it's a significant change the way in which we picture um, this, you know, moment in the life of um, humans when we realize that like 
there were different type there were different types yeah. of humans around and it was right. possible to like know that there were different types of humans i mean i kind of read the like i was i, I sort of read the the um like loon and his like band um have some fears that seem to be rational fears of the right. old ones um which revolve a lot around like um they are hard to communicate with. Yeah. Um, and then some, and, and thus could be quite dangerous, right? Particularly mm -hmm. dangerous to, to people who are by themselves. Um, and then they have some um, fears of them that are not, that are just like not rational in that way. And that's because, which are because like they look weird. Right. Um, right. And they sound weird. Um, and it may, I mean, it makes me think a lot about, um, you know, uh, yeah, the pot, I mean, some of it, it seems to me about this kind of like uncanny encounter, right? Like where, you know, that there's a likeness and uh, you mm -hmm. feel the likeness and the difference at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and some of it also, I think is about like a certain kind of, um, you know, we see in one of the, what, later on in the sections that we read for today, like there's a point when uh, Loon is out with either Moss or Hawk and they, mm -hmm. they find a deer that has fallen into a, some kind of crevice and they're like trying to get it out. Um, and they talk about its eyes and Loon says, oh yeah, you know, animals eyes are different from ours. And um, Thorne says that's because they don't have souls um, and Moss or whoever it is that he's with is like, well, that seems dumb to me. I mean, right. when I look at this deer's eyes, I feel like it was thinking exactly what you or I would be thinking if we fell into a crevasse and we're, we're dying. Um, and that, uh, you know, so I think we see this kind of, there maybe like, um, I was thinking like in a subtle way, like we see the kind of like, um, maybe just like the emergence of certain kinds of hierarchies and the beginning of drawing certain kinds of lines, because like that seems to me to be partly why um, we get to kind of push back on that, why we get this section from the point of view, initially from the point of view of Wolverine and mm -hmm. Wolverine goes to get Heather, a human mm -hmm. that he knows and has communication with. Um, and for Heather, you know, for all that she she is both like the sort of like the scientist you know right. the one who tests thing tests things out um the one who's like very interested in like studying and tracking the properties of things but also she's like quite open not only to oh the wolverine is communicating with me um but also ultimately to click i mean she's the one who's like this you know this person is hurt and we're going to take yeah. care of him and figures out some things about how to communicate with him which i think has seemed like, I feel like Loon's perception of the sounds that the old ones make is that mm -hmm. it's not language, whereas mm -hmm. Heather's perception is that it is language. So I'm just thinking, like, we're seeing some subtle stuff about, like, how lines of differentiation begin mm -hmm. to be drawn and the kinds of differentiations that can turn into, like, hierarchies or the assumption right. of you are human, you are not human. Right, like right, 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 right. Um, yeah, which definitely, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I just was doing some research. I mean, not research. I look, I Googled it for 30 seconds and Neanderthals went extinct 40,000 years ago. Um, so, I mean, not that the timeline has to like 
match up exactly with this, but they, you know, they definitely um, coexisted with Homo sapiens and other um, human species. Um, but one thing that I think is an interesting about the way that Click is characterized here is that um, he is alone, and that's that theme of solitariness and group living, or that dialectic, that tension there is interesting here if we're thinking about this as sort of the tail end of the Neanderthal as mm. a species. And because no one knows where, why they died out or, or, or what happened to them, whether it was, you know, you know, plague or, or whatever, but certainly um, isolation and like um, being broken off from your pack um, would not be a good survival strategy. Um, and so, uh, so that's interesting to, to take note of that the, that the book sort of um, dramatizes that kind of dying off of the Neanderthals as a species as well. Spoiler alert. Um, in, in, <laughs> in, in the character, in the character of click. Right. And then also the fact that because it's very clear that the the cave painting that happens in the section we're reading for today is Le Chaux Cave, which was um, dated to like 30,000 years ago. Right. So that there is this kind of, it's either a gap in the kind of strict chronology, if Neanderthals died out 40,000 years ago and the cave was painted 30,000 years ago. But it's also clear that from um, Loon and um, Thorne's you know, discussion of an encounter with the cave, that that cave had been painted, repainted for like many millennia. So yeah. what's fascinating about that is there's a prehistory prior to the prehistory yeah. that we're getting, right? And that humans actually have been around for like a hundred thousand mm. years or something like, or homo sapiens, something like a hundred thousand years, but other hominin species for much longer than that. Um, and so just to think about that is so fascinating. And also the other thing, just to reiterate what you already said is thinking about um, being in dialogue with other humans that are not humans or like other type, like literally other types of humans. Yeah. Um, people who like look radically different than you, uh, who have a completely different language capability than you. Um, who have different dietary needs than you, um, right, right. is super alienating <laughs> um, and, and cool. I mean, it's kind of cool to think about like, um, you know, uh, I was just, when you were talking, I was thinking like, yeah, I mean, the old ones we see here, like old ones is the right name for, I mean, they know to right. name them, right. right. As, as like some, something prior, um, which is, I think, fascinating. Um, and, and yeah, we are like seeing their last days. I mean, and this, I think, you know, becomes like both symbolized and realized in kind of like fascinating ways later on with, with click. Um, but, um, but it's like interesting to think about that, like the idea of, um, you know, coming to be the la the last of your kind, um, which, you know, is both, I think, gets like um, trotted out sometimes as a sort of like, that's often like a trope about the, in the representation of indigenous people, right? right? I mean, Ishii, last of his kind, um, mm -hmm. as the most like maybe f famous American example mm -hmm. of that, you know, a 
case, of course, written about by um, the parents of Ursula, <laughs> of Ursula Le Guin. Right. Um, but that, um, but also the sort of like science fictional idea of like, um, you know, uh, what is it to live on, um, like after the earth has been ruined, right? Mm -hmm. What is it to be the last, you know, the last man, for example, like, mm -hmm. um, what is it to like live past your historical moment? And then that's a like kind of question, like past the moment of your, of your flourishing. That's a kind of question that also like resonates with like the way the sort of like functional immortality or the extreme life extension in the, mm -hmm. in the Mars novels too, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and we don't, um, you know, the ways in which like the first hundred who live for such an incredibly long time in the Mars books are able to perceive what's going on is entirely run through a set of like absolutely like, you know, modern ways of understanding what time, <laughs> what time mm -hmm. is and what history is. But like, uh, I think there's something really interesting here in thinking about like, and maybe in thinking about this, I mean, the whole book seems to be like a kind of recasting of the primitive. I mean, and, yeah. and like a pushing back on like yeah. assumptions about the primitive. And then within that to have like the remnant, right? The older old ones um, do, does something that's just like very complicated, you know, like um, uh, in, in the way in which it, in the way in which it imagines this as an entire, as an entire world and a world that's like in this kind of like, that's not at all static, that's like constantly changing right. in which new kinds of things are really are emergent all the time, new ways of doing things, new kinds of knowledge, new kinds of social relations are emergent. Um, but that we also have like living, a living version of the past there. I just like, there's something very cool about that. Yeah. And I think that like that, um, that just makes me think about how, um, like the ways in which we could discuss like shaman as not just science fictional, but as like, um, as an anti-capitalist book where, you know, that capitalism and modernity try so hard to make it seem like this is the only way and that this is a natural progression mm -hmm. of certain like historical forces that were inevitable and that, um, and, and also just the erasure of, of history, um, it, and 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 prior sort of life ways. I mean, it makes me think again about the James C. Scott Against the Grain book, where civilization and the state do a lot of work to erase the life the life ways of, like, for example, the barbarian, the quote unquote barbarians, yeah, um, the stateless people who don't have written records, so they must therefore be primitive. Um, whereas, um, if you actually look at it the state is a barbaric institution uh, by definition at the, that the quote unquote barbarians are likely far more civilized and um, in, in, in various ways than, than quote unquote civilized people. Right. Um, and so to be able to imagine and, and see the way that um, humans, actual humans, these aren't like aliens or like cavemen, they are like genetically and cognitively identical to us um, manage to live without a state um, and still have history and tradition, but also invent new things. Um, that's like one of the really cool th things about this book, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that, um, I, you know, I'm so on this reading of this, like just kind of continually struck with that. And I feel like it is, um, uh, 
it's both really like beautiful and not a sentimentalizing kind yes. of representation. Um, and I was just thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, like that's so also connected to the interest in here in um, sort of solitude versus versus like collective or social living, right? Because like the, you know, that sort of like the capitalist story is always like the Robinson Crusoe story, mm-hmm. right? You know, like it emphasizes the individual as just, I mean, the individual must be like the natural starting point for social organization. And what is social organization? It's like some sort of like structure um, that that governs and, um, you know, restrains in certain ways the impulses of the individual, right? And here, like we see actually, I think, not not that we don't see individuals here, but but we see like a very different relationship between the individual and the band. The band is not simply an agglomeration of individuals. It's right. like something it's something more than an individual is or can be. But also individuals are not with the band solely out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Like there's a great moment. I think I I can't. Uh, I don't know if I can. Oh, when they're a little bit later on, when they're walking through, I did a really terrible um, job of putting in a thousand post-it notes and then not making a list of where the Mm -hmm. places that I wanted to talk about were. Um, Classic, smart. I cut um, this part out. Just flipping through, just going to find it. So when they are leaving after they've started... um, uh, heading, it's on page uh, 138, after they've started heading out, um, after the ice is broken up and they've started heading out to um, the summer, their summer camp, their summer location, they're going to go to the 8-8 festival, um, which I just like the name of that has just like stuck in my mind. It's like pitchfork, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and they're going to do, and they're going to um, do their big caribou hunt right on the way. Um, so they're, they're walking along and they come to um, uh, a river, a big river, which is completely like jammed up with logs and thorn. Uh, thorn makes a joke about it be- being done by big mother muskrat, which is, mm-hmm. is like a funny joke, imagining like a giant muskrat or beaver Um so they they ford the river walking across the log jam, um, uh, uh, stepping from one stripped, battered log to the next, up, down, over, holding the little ones by the hand, hefting them over branches that blocked the way. They followed Schist's lead, which he marked with ties of red yarn, and the root was solid. Not a single log moved under them. They might as well have been walking on fallen logs on the forest floor, even though through the many holes underfoot, they could see the river bubbling west. It was strange and beautiful, and they talked about it all that night by their fire. Um, there are many, I think there are many passages that are like this, where we see these characters often like corporately, like more than one of them, perceiving um, the incredible beauty of a of a natural moment, and often a beauty that's related to like um you know, the relationship between light and dark or motion and here motion and stillness, right? And right. the kind of this idea of these two, you know, uh, it feels like the forest floor and yet you're walking across a river, right? These two like contrasting, like, um, you know, whatever, like ecosystems or whatever. Um, uh, 
it was strange and beautiful. Like this is their perception of it as they're doing it. Right. You know, and like, we both see the very, the sort of practical, like holding the little one's hands so they can get over. Um, but also schist is marking the way as they have been following, as they go along, um, cairns and other markers that other people right. have left yeah. behind. Right. So we see that this is like, you know, um, uh, there is a sharing of not right. A sharing of knowledge. And then they talk about it that night by their fire. I mean, they sit around the fire and they're talking about it. Presumably some of that conversation might be like, that was crazy that we were able yeah, to get over, right. but some of it's about that was beautiful. Right? right. And this is like the, so it's like the, the being, the being, the collective life is not only formed around like, well, this is necessary for survival. Um, right. And it's not formed around, this is the most efficient way for us to live. Right. It's also about like, this is like what, how you perceive beauty. You perceive it with others, you know? I just got the idea of, uh, they're sitting around the campfire that night and people are like, that was crazy. It was so like scary is like, but like, I thought it was going to slip, but we didn't. It was like, yeah, but it's also so beautiful. Like, oh my God, like the water, the way that it was bubbling underneath. And then there's a third guy being like, this sucks, man. Why do we have to do this every year? Let's just stay <laughs> where we were at. And that's the asshole who wanted to build the state. Like that's the person who wants to build walls around their territory and uh, create all kinds of laws and rules and just hates camping and hates anything new or risky or anything like that. They just want to stay and stare at the fire that they're used to. Yeah. <laughs> sucks when can we go home (laughs) exactly i mean like one of the things that i think this is scott talks about this a lot in in against the grain um but i I think it kind of comes out here too that like the um we talked about this last time like it's not like they don't have possessions it's not like they don't make things it's not like they don't have material culture in fact they they do um and it's it's even they even have like you know like they make structures to like stay inside of but their life is full of emotion that goes with like the motion of like water and wind and seasonal change um and therefore like their life is really full of it's like full of difference you know sameness and difference like right they know what they're gonna they know what they're gonna do right they know where they're gonna go they know where the summer camp is you know like that there is a pattern to it but like along the way, like there's great diversity in the way right. that they they live and in the in the kinds of experiences that they have. And that like, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, exactly. That's fascinating and definitely gives you a sort of pang as you sit in your apartment. Well, I want I did. I want to tea from the same mug. <laughs> the 367th day in a row. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's really something interesting related to this, to shaman and thinking about the world that we're given today about the dialectic between sameness and novelty um, and safety and newness, um, where it's not like newness doesn't exist in modernity and under capitalism, but it just right. takes it takes a different form and a form that is, you know, um, enervating, that is not um, nourishing or, or interesting necessarily. It's just dazzling rather than, um, I don't know, I hate to say organic, but like it, it, it empty, you know, uh, not, not, not fulfilling, but I wanted to read actually from the Scott book against the grain on page 92, 
Cause I think it's really worth, you know, it's, it, it, it helps to clarify that, uh, about kind of, um, in a different way, what's going on in shaman and, and the world that we're being exposed to. It says, um, I'm tempted. It's a kind of a conclusion of, uh, chapter two. I'm tempted to see the late Neolithic revolution for all its contributions to large scale societies as something of a de-skilling. Adam Smith's iconic example of the productivity gains achieved through the division of labor was the pin factory where each minute step each minute step of pin making was broken down into a task carried out by a different worker. Alexis de Tocqueville read The Wealth of Nations sympathetically, but asked, what can be expected of a man who has spent 20 years of his life putting heads on pins? If this is too bleak a view of a breakthrough credited with making civilization possible, let us at least say that it represents a contraction of our species' attention to and practical knowledge of the natural world, a contraction of diet, a contraction of space, and perhaps a contraction as well in the breadth of ritual life. Mm. And I think that that's a good point to mm -hmm. uh, quote from that book while we talk about um, the Elga chapter where they go, they the pack as as well as all the other packs in the area they travel they do their yearly trek to the 88 festival um which is rendered in such like fascinating ways it's kind of a month long um you know festival of the different people where they do all kinds of different things they exchange they dance they party they mate they um they fight but only verbally and they have and they have like a little um mini academic conference where <laughs> where the shamans get together and compare their year sticks and get drunk um which is just like what a <laughs> but like they you know they share what they've done for that year um with each other and they make new friends and they and they rekindle old friendships and they meet new people and stuff and it shows that this is um you know a very central aspect of human living together, um, of uh, meeting new people and, and periodically uh, grouping up with different smaller groups and things like that. Yeah. And that it's not, um, you know, there, we can see some like important functions being served by the festival, one of which actually is meeting people outside of your particular clan, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is the way in which like, um, is a good part of the way in which this culture puts, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, makes, uh, ensures that the incest taboo is sort mm -hmm. of, um, followed or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever you say about a taboo, uh, uh, right. So that it's an opportunity to like meet other people um, to continue sort of like um, changing and diversifying somewhat the makeup of your particular pack through meeting people from other other clan lineages. But it's also so much more than that. It's like, it's a seasonal festival. Um, mm -hmm. Although, you know, it is not one run by the, not one run by the shamans, um, right. you know, uh, it lets people like play and participate together um, and show things that they've like learned or figured out how to do um, to people who they don't see all the time. Um, it's also like a place for like display, like everybody gets dressed up, you know, and that seems to be 
about being beautiful, but also about showing that like, you know, you, uh, like, you know, making feather capes and all of these things that are obviously like not practical. Right. So it's also like this kind of scene of like abundance and even like, um, you know, even something like luxury, you know, these, mm -hmm. you know, getting the chance to like put on the stuff and like, you know, use the instruments and like maybe your fancy new spear thrower, maybe like, uh, you know, fancy new drum that you've made or whatever that are not necessary, but are like beautiful and exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and also to have like group you know, essentially like group transformative group experiences, you know, the shamans all seem like they get high and drunk right. and everybody drinks like mash all day long. Um, and like, has like trippy drum experiences all night long. <laughs> <laughs> they're drinking, they're eating just tons of caribou. Like there's the whole caribou processing, um, <clears throat> segment where everyone's just covered in blood at the end of the day. And they, <laughs> it's like, um, and, uh, there's the poem too. Well, this is before they even get there, but there's like the poem about all the different parts of the caribou and like, which ones who eats, which part who gets and, to eat what? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Um, just really some incredible poems in this, um, in this book, by the oh, way. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think they're actually very good and they work like, um, uh, they work really beautifully in, in here. I feel like they have that, like, I feel like the Stan's poems are usually like have a sense of humor to yes. them. Um, uh, and these, yeah, these poems just like fit, like they work, they work as like, Oh, this is like how you would tell a story, but they also work as like, you know, a beautiful little passage that you could kind of like pull out and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I love that when they, they get there, um, you know, they're definitely, we definitely get that there is an emphasis on like exchanging new kinds of knowledge and things that you've figured out how to make or things that like your particular pack, like makes really well. Right. Um, uh, and we're, we're told that there's some bartering that goes on, but what we really see is actually is gift giving is mm -hmm. that people, bring extras of the stuff that they make that other people can take, um, you know, and that, that, that itself, like giving away the beautiful and useful things that you make, giving away the things that you've learned how to, you know, both from the natural materials you have proximity to and from your own building up of skills that you've learned how to make better than the versions of them that other people make. Um, that that's a big part of this. That's like how culture is getting, um, getting shared around is mm -hmm. like through, is through gifts, um, uh, through this kind of like generosity of just like bringing stuff and then like putting it around you and people are walking by and like taking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that it reinforces the, the community, the social, um, it reinforces their bonds with each other, which they, you know, periodically will need like at the end of the next chapter, hunger spring, after they've gone through mm -hmm. this big, you know, this, this nasty, um, winter where they've run out of food, they thorn and schist have to go to the Raven clan and ask for some food and the Ravens, you know, give it to them. Um, in part, because, I mean, like, we're not told why, but it's obvious why it's that if we help, if we help you this time, you'll help us next time. Right. Um, because this kind of thing happens all the time. And that 
this festival is a way of yeah reinforcing those those bonds um and renewing you know ruining the renewing that relationship um and yeah um, and the relation and that the relationship is not only like within um like within the particular within the clan or within the pack the relationship is also like between between packs and that's just like that's something that's understood to be there but also this coming together just like reinforces that right yeah we all meet up we're all part of the same group we do learn in this section when we meet um when we meet elga um the very tall slightly mysterious um uh uh woman who loon ends up marrying mm-hmm. um you know that there are conflicts between Packs and her life story is one of conflict of having like lost a pack and then ended up in one that where bad things happened that she had to escape from and had to live on her own. Um, so, you know, it's not that we're seeing like a kind of like seamless, like everybody just gets along, but there's an understanding of like mutual dependence on each other and a willingness to, and a willingness to give to each other. And there's also, as we get made quite explicit here, uh, on page 166 that like people don't fight here because Mm -hmm. the consequences to physical fighting are too huge essentially because an injury to one just is an injury to all like one injured person um is more than a pack um uh needs right i mean one injured person injures the entire pack right so Mm -hmm. there so there is really a sense not of like you know just total harmony but of like a agreement that like everybody knows that there are high stakes in like knowing other people and there are also high stakes in like not letting your differences <laughs> with other people turn into physical aggression mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so yeah the fights end up being uh the dozens basically they're just shouting matches and <laughs> and uh, clever insults um which you know so sticks and stones may break neanderthal's bones but names will never hurt them they're not neanderthals they're homo sapiens um i was trying to be clever and i got it i got it stuck my foot in it (laughs) you fool really idiot what a dummy Um, i do think late i mean we actually don't get a very clear picture in the section about the festival about what it is that the shaman are the shamans are are doing in their corroboration but we later in these two chapters in the next chapter yeah do learn about like what it is the way in which they're trying to keep track of time um and make figure out how to make a yearly calendar resolve itself with like a lunar a lunar cycle calendar is basically what they're doing and like it is extreme it's extremely complicated right yes. we're we're seeing them figuring out like an extremely difficult you know like problem that is both a math problem and a record keeping problem and a problem about how you perceive time itself. There's a, yeah, there's like robust debate about um, the right way to do it or the most accurate way to do it. Um, And also, or the most useful way to do it because there's always going to be a remainder. Um, They've, they've, they figured that out. Like mathematically, it's not like a modern, the 365 day year is not a modern invention. Like it's very obvious to, you know, you can figure that out very easily if you have 
especially if you have a clear sky, which we don't anymore. Um, that's another thing True. we've lost to, uh, to modernity, mm-hmm. but, um, that, uh, where is that part They that they can have like, um, 12, 28 day months plus blah, blah, blah. Where is that it? That is I think 201. Yes. So it's <clears throat> 201. <clears throat> um, so like Thorin and Loon, uh, Thorn is playing his, plays his um, I spy game. Wait, I see something. <laughs> A face looking left and down turns his head until he's looking up and right. The man in the moon, Loon said, looking around every month. Yes, and full moon is when the moon's face is looking right at us. How many days in a month? 29 and a half days, new moon to new moon. Yes, so what do we do about that? We alternate the months and call them either hollow or full, meaning either 29 days or 30 days. 12 of those in alternate alternation leaves us short of the winter solstice by 11 or 12 days. So the shamans at the corroboration add a 13th month every two or three years. Yes, and it still doesn't work. Thorn added with Thorn added with a gloomy frown. The error builds up fast. Vol thinks he has a splitter that makes it better. Two score and 19 over two. But even that loses a day and every a day every three years or so. And besides, what kind of a split is that? It has no shape. No one can see it. It's cat vomit. <laughs> Maybe Heather should taste it. Um, and then and then that immediately devolves into not devolves, but like evolves, moves into a conversation about kind of metaphysics or something like are people monthly or yearly? And it depends if you're a man or a woman. No, everybody is monthly, like all this kind of, you know, the wisdom that they can derive from like observable reality that then can be rendered into an, an, another way of thinking about something else essentially um, is like super cool because it, it involves like it, 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 it imbricates, it weaves together you know, knowledge of the physical world with the attempt to come up with sort of somewhat like metaphysical or universal human truths that don't have anything to do with that, that are abstraction that like, like they have abstract thought, you know, like it's not just, um, they're not just cows in the field. These are like intelligent human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting there that the, um, you know, Thorne wants Thorne wants the question to resolve into mm-hmm. a question, like a gendered question, right? Internal thinkers versus external thinkers. And that's also like, presumably like, you know, uh, right. Those ruled by the lunar cycle versus those who could have like a calendar. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and uh, uh, Loon doesn't seem to like, Loon doesn't really buy that, um, that distinction that, um uh, that, that, uh, Thorne wants to uphold, you know, that like Phyllis, that philosophical distinction. And that gets pushed back on further because on the, just right after that, um, is one of the many moments we get with Heather where she, she's like, okay, I have, I have these like, what, one, two, three, I have these four different fire starter kits, each using a different wood. We've got to start testing them out and keeping records of which one works best, you know, like, and this is like consistently the role that she plays, like not just eating the cat vomit in order to like taste like what was the thing that it 
it threw up, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In order to figure these things out, but also like this kind of, um, you know, this natural scientific like impulse toward keeping doing testing and then yeah. keeping the records of the tests and like that doesn't and then come. Yeah. And also sharing it. Like we and can tell, yeah. tell everybody at the next festival. Right. Right. And, and then it's like says, obvious to her that this is, this is like useful, right? Yes. This is very work that's useful. Useful and, 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 and important. And Loon says, well, we can tell them that, that they're, but they're not going to believe us. And she's like, they'll have no choice to believe us because they can do it themselves <laughs> and they'll see that it's true and real. And, um, uh, they can try it for themselves and see that they're right. And then he mentions it to Thorne and Thorne only snorted when Loon mentioned this later. Hers aren't the interesting things to be right or wrong about. Those are just the way things are. But that's what she wants to know. Sure, so does everyone. But things we can know in that way are a very small part of what matters. So it's a form of looking away. You get to the hard question. You get to the hard questions. Heather just looks away. You, because you're a shaman, right? Um, I wonder what she would say to that. Ask her, but I'll tell you what she'll say because she's always saying the same things. She'll say, first things first. First, know what you can know, then take a look at the harder things. Isn't that right though? Not at all. The hard questions press on us the whole time. Uh, no, matter what we, no matter what we know or don't know, you have to face up to Narsuk, which is from Ministry for, for the mm -hmm. Future as well. The hard questions can't be avoided, not if you want to really be alive. So, you know, he's in the humanities and she's in the sciences. <laughs> I mean, and the, yeah, yeah. I mean, here we get her. She's the empiricist, right? Um, yeah. But like, of course, you know, the truth is like, they're both right. I mean, you can't get to the hard questions. Um, uh, uh, those things are not, those things are not. Uh, separable from each other. And I think we also, we see a little bit about like how much um, his idea of like, you know, abstraction or whatever actually itself is like, you know, if, if like the abstraction is there are different kinds of people and some of them are, are like um, women people and some of them are men people, um, uh, you know, like then the abstraction is itself like um, an extrapolation from a set of, you know, like, uh, a set of more or less material conditions yeah. as opposed to, um, yeah. 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 Ideology. Ideology. <laughs> I mean, but we, he's, you know, like, I think that like Thorne is an interesting, like, um, that this kind of like gets, um, the dynamic between the two of them gets like repeated in a different way, like at the very end of this chapter where we see that two members of the, uh, two members of the pack have become ill. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, both Heather and Thorne are working on healing them. Right. And we see that both there are distinctions between the shamanic practice and the herb woman's practice. Um, and yet they, they seem to really come to, they seem to come together, right? You know, they are limited in both cases in their ability to help. Um, and they like manifest themselves differently, but they do, we do see like this kind of like, um, that these are really not sort of like opposites, right? right. Or, you know, not, dis not, not approaches like to the world that we could hold distinct, but rather that like they both grasp certain kinds of things and allow for certain kinds of things. And it's clear too that like the, the way that Thorne's treatment of Ducky and Windy differ, like diff they differ radically because 
it's clear that the, each of them need, even though they're both ill, they both need something very different. And Ducky, had, he, the way that he ministers to Ducky is very theatrical. He like essentially like scares the illness out of her in a way where he's like, uh, you know, that he thinks that like there's something actually that can be done for this person. Whereas with Wendy, it's clear to him, we don't know really why, but it's clear to him that there's nothing we can do for, for Wendy and that the best thing to do is just stand by her side and, you know, um, never don't let her be alone and let her go easily essentially. Right. Right. Um, cause he plays the flute for her. He doesn't have any of these theatrics. He doesn't wear the bison hat, uh, right, jump right. around the, 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 the hut or whatever. Um, but that, yeah, that there's definitely like a, um, that both need to both Heather and Thorne need to minister to, to both of them. And that Loon needs to be aware of, because prior earlier in the chapter two, Heather is like having him memorize all of these different plants, just part of that de-skilling that James Scott talks about. It's like, we don't know any plants anymore, but he needs to know all of the plants and all of their properties and what they're doing, what they're, what they don't do. And, and um, so that kind of experimentation and, and he says, but I'm a, you know, it's like, he's a shaman. Why does he need to know all this stuff? And Heather's like, Thorne knows all this stuff too. Everybody knows everything is what she says. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is such a great, like, um, you know, I, I think something that we kind of, I mean, I guess we should talk about the, we should talk about the cave, um, yeah. maybe both when the, um, uh, the, the ritual in the cave, when everybody comes and then, um, Thorn and Loon going deeper into the, into the cave and the first like extended painting scene that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, I like that the book, I think, does a really great job of having, um, um, you know, the shaman is both special and not special at the same Mm -hmm. time, both like uh, does have access to things that I think we could perfectly well think of as as powers Um, uh, does. I mean, including like, you know, creativity and the, the feeling that like, um, imaginative creativity must be like part of your interaction with the, Mm -hmm. with the world. Um, but at the same time, the, the shaman is really like, um, is, is also a version of the thing that Heather does that doesn't look special, even though it obviously in some ways is also special, right. Which is careful knowing of things, record keeping, figuring stuff out right you know um and and figuring out how to pass it down not Mm -hmm. just to an apprentice but to everybody right you know like the rituals and the stories and the songs are not are are not just about like this person performs this thing they're also about like everybody knows that this is a way to think about this and everybody Mm -hmm. knows that this is what's at stake in this particular moment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the yeah the 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 scene in the in the cave and the the art make. I mean, first of all, it's the it's the ceremony. <clears throat> the entire tribe goes into the cave. The entire pack goes into the cave, and they you know give thanks and um, uh, say goodbye to the year essentially. Um, and um, and then. Um, travel down and then the rest of the tribe the pack leaves and they travel deeper into the cave to do their their painting 
Um, and this, I don't know if it's accurate to say this, but at least in the novels that we've read by um, Stan, this feels like the most extended scene of art making um, that we've seen maybe. Um, and I, which I think is really cool because of like not only art making, but like the experience of art as well, because it really is a um, uh, sort of, I want to call it like an accurate and evocative mixture of both like the practical aspect of art making and also the kind of like mystical or quasi-religious experience of re receiving art and like being open to it and and understanding what its kind of power is to unsettle us um, and to sort of displace us like the part where, so they, um, where he has Loon put his hand on the wall and like mm. immerse himself in the wall. So like, um, I mean that 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 you know the, it's very evocative. All the kind of like there's torches or these these lights that make these flickering shadows on the wall that make all the that the shadows look like they're move are moving, and then the paintings on the wall uh, it, it gives them the impression of of moving of movement. Um, on one eighty seven, I think the sounds and sights around him did not cohere in the way they would have in the world outside the cold mud sometimes squished under his feet then firm to cold wet stone again when it went soft it felt like he would slide down into the rock and once looking down fearfully he saw he was in the floor up to his ankles somewhat desperately he hopped from one foot to the other to free himself thorn noticed this and he reached out and took loon's right hand and pulled him up hold, pulled him by it over to the wall and put his hand against the cave wall touch it hold still he put a little hollowed bird bone to his lips like Heather's blow dart branch and blew a cloud of black powder over the back of Loon's hand. It disappeared into the new black splotch on the wall and Loon felt the stone swallow his hand, felt himself jerked forward, pulled by the hand. The wall could suck in his whole body. His wrist had been pulled in and now he started pulling back hard. He was too frightened even to cry out. Thorn put an arm around Loon's middle and together with some difficulty, they pulled Loon back out of the wall grunting and heaving. When Loon popped free, he held his pale palm up to his face, amazed, staring at it and trembling with relief to have it back. Thorn led him away with uncharacteristic gentleness. There on the cave wall behind them, an open hole, the shape of Loon's hand showed where he had most, where he had almost been sucked in. Now a part of you will always be there, Thorn chanted. Um, which is so cool. It's like, um, Again, it's like a practical effect, but it has this like overwhelming psychic impression mm -hmm. on Loon that he could have been sort of sucked in to this to this stone. And a similar thing happens when he first sees um, Thorn start painting on the wall. That that there's a kind of blackness to the wall that that Thorn might like simply disappear into. Um, and that kind of concept of of immersion of immersion in the art. Uh, in the artwork is um, is really great. It's a really great rendering of kind of, um, yeah, again, both the experience of making and the experience of experiencing art, which are basically the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's like that, yeah, I, that the hand passage is so great because it's like, um, you know, everything that happens in the cave has a hallucinatory quality 
to it, right? Um, you know, um, and that, uh, but I, 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 I like particularly the hand, not only because you can picture, of course, the handprint on the wall right. of the cave so well, which is like a very, yeah, like a very effective, like powerful thing, thing to do to your reader, right? You know, like they can picture this quite easily. Um, but also because that is such a, I mean, we get to see in this section, uh, Thorne actually doing painting, mm-hmm. right? And we, and so we see some things about the kinds of techniques that he's developing, which are like primarily about like um, uh, sort of perspective and ways of capturing motion in something that's still, right? Um, and, and, and showing like, um, I guess this is part of perspective, but being able to show like multiple creatures together in one, in one space. Um, but the hand thing is great because it's like, there's nothing complicated technically happening there. Right. And, and it's not that like Loon is captured by that because like what's happening, like looks like motion, Right. Or looks, you know, but in fact, there is motion as like the ink is being blown over his mm-hmm. hand. Right. Um, so it really is this like process moment, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. purely, purely process, like just in the making of something, this extraordinary experience is had. And that does feel like however much the cave is also a place of specialness and of special contact with the earth um, and of this kind of possibility of having, like, um, uh, you know, of communicating to the earth and of communicating, like, to something that is, like, far, like, you know, greater and more frightening <laughs> than you are. Um, uh, okay, Millie, uh, Milton, this really, he's saying it's dinner time. Yeah. It's dinner time. I love you so much that I want to let you know that it's dinner time. Um uh, but the hand, the hand thing is like, um, there's something that's so like simple and kind of direct about it. And yet also the experience is like totally wild. Right. Yeah. Um, I feel like this goes along really well with what you were saying about like, um, you know, despite like the way in which like capital gives us novelty all the time, right. Novelty and gimmicks and, you know, newness, 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 right. Like the Zack Snyder cut of the like <laughs> movie or whatever. Uh, uh, it's a DC universe, extended universe. <laughs> Avengers are Marvel. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whatever superheroes, <sighs> Zack Snyder's boy, boy. Marvel universe. Just, no. uh, I know, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Um, but you know what I mean? Like the sort of, um, I mean, this just seems like such a good time to think about like the, like, well, one, like the deadness of like so much stuff that is given to us as culture. Um, but also the way in which like, it's like the barrage of newness Yeah. Like, in many ways, like, you know, I mean, I realize it's hard not to sound like a crazy reactionary saying this stuff, but like, it is about like a narrowing of the sensory field too. Like, I mean, I feel like you and I have talked about this a lot. Like when we go see like, um, you know, superhero movies, how like, you know, what, like what kind of pleasure can you take from the way that these movies look? Right. I mean, they look like shit, like, you know, they don't even, they don't give you like the pleasures of artificiality even. No, no. Um, And here we have this idea of like, 
I don't know. There's so much in this, so much, we get so many like extremely vivid moments, like not only of the water rushing under the logs, but like mm. what moonlight looks like and what yeah. the world looks like when it's transformed. And the cave sequence is all about like, um, you know, just like the extraordinary pleasure, like even the transformativeness of like contrastive colors of like yes. light and dark, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. uh, you know, just like, these things that we think of as like, um, that are easy to think of as just like very basic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, but here, like, even without like, you know, figuring out how you can like draw a pack of lions, yeah. even without the color red, right? We have this like right. totally wild experience. Yeah. I was gonna say about the lions uh, that, uh, that you brought that up, because after they, after he paints, then they regard the painting and they they talk about it and they critique it. And and Loon says, you could really see them move. And and Thorne's like, oh, I'm glad you said that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, he's like, Quartz is gonna like shit, him, shit himself when he sees those. Um, he says, uh, you know, it, and then and Thorne says, that's a technique. You, you know, you can learn how to do this. It, it, it's not by happenstance. Like that, that's a technique that you can learn how to how to make them look like they're moving. And he goes, and then um, Loon says uh, on 192, he says, those two lions touching noses don't make sense. And Thorne says, but cats are like that. So here we have a critique of realism, but mm -hmm. like, it's like, cats are like that. You know how they are. There are always some in a pack who aren't paying any attention to what the others are doing. Raven messed them up. They're not very good at being pack animals. They have a hard time staying on the hunt long enough and they don't care what the rest of the pack thinks of them. That's true, Loon said. So that helps make it look real. I did it just as it came to me. It was. It always has to be more than just your idea of what you want. It's not just your plan. You have to think how it would really be. Also see how that lion and the bison just to the left of it are on the same bulge. They're like a combined animal looking like both at once. Of course, if the lion catches the bison, that's what would happen. And at the moment of attack, you often feel, you often see both tails at once mixed together like a two-headed sheep in a herd or bison man over there about to mount the woman. See how the left leg could look belong to the other one. So it's, it really moves. I feel like it might trip and fall, you know, like it's like that there's, um, yeah, that there's, 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 there's technique there. There's a kind of fidelity to the real, but also if it were simply, you know, if it were simply um, verisimilitudinous or something, if it were simply a fidelity to the real, it would not look evocative or interesting at all. It wouldn't be worth looking at. You have to like bend reality a little bit to make things more, more real than they are. Yeah, and that it's also that it also is a practice that is about like this is also a communicative practice about communicating right. between. I mean, we know it's definitely a communicative practice between humans, right? Because we're in this space mm -hmm. where you know um, uh, Thorn Thorn's bad shaman <laughs> painted, um, and Thorn has painted, and Loon will paint. You know this the so we're we're both in this like sort of space where like um you know ideas and techniques like form and content are being passed down right and passed a lot among right different uh different shamans and different groups of shamans um but we're also in a space that's about communicating these are the these are the animals that we love the most to earth to mm -hmm. mother earth and i i love that the sort of the um i think that the the sort of ritual moment 
before everybody else leaves where the um the animals are all red around them and it's this moment of giving of giving thanks mm-hmm. um and on, on 183 um it felt like the longest moment of the year something like mm. the spindle the stars turn around i think is a really beautiful line and it's this beautiful sense of like this kind of communal this deep communal ritual um to like uh uh uh, of paying thanks, right? And then, you know, um, Thorn and Loon are going to go and speak further, right? Um, and we have this kind of interesting, like, you know, all these narrow passages, right? These are all like vaginal passages, mm-hmm. like into the womb. But once they're actually in the womb, there's a way in which the kind of like, um, the sort of easy parallel to like, oh, this is just like a woman's body kind of falls apart because the womb is cold, right? Mm. I mean, it may be womb, the cave may be womb-like in certain ways, but like it's cold and it's actually quite, it's frightening, right? Yeah. You know, it's darkness is frightening, um, you know, and the darkness is itself like um, so important to what's going on, you know, that this is also like a kind of like, there's a physical challenge here, right? And a mental challenge to not like, just like be completely alarmed <laughs> by, mm-hmm. by what they're doing. Um, and I think there's an interesting sort of like push pull between the idea that the space itself like is or is representative of the womb of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way in which like that kind of parallel doesn't really hold up or, you know, there's something there that's like too extraordinary to hold it in your head. And then the ways in which like this, as you were saying, like this is art that is representational, right? Mm-hmm. And that aims at a certain kind of naturalism, right? It wants to show what it is that animals are really doing, but you don't get to that naturalism through like the most obviously naturalistic means of representation. Instead, you stretch it and transform it. And that kind of back and forth between like, you know, um, uh, uh, the image is the thing and the image is not the thing, right? Yeah. And the image teaches you something about the thing. Um, just as like the experience, like part of this experience that they're having, you know, we've talked a lot about like the ideas in, you know, many of Stan's books about like, um, you know, what is it to like feel like and to experience being a creature of this planet that we are inarguably creatures of? And like, how do we have that experience? And like, is there a kind of like spirituality that we can imagine that like allows that for us, right? And we see glimpses of that just like all over the place. And like, you know, here that here they are like profoundly creatures like uh, of their planet and their place and their their very particular place. Um, and yet they also have like a spiritual representation of being such, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like they, um, they, they both like, um, you know, live that out um, and also have this imaginative life that allows them to live it out in a different kind of like dimension. Mm-hmm. Um um, and yeah, and then that does just become like this really like beautiful, like thinking about, you know, what is the place of making art? Like mm-hmm. looking at it, sure. But like you were saying, like making it, right? Right. Enga- engaging with it in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that we should probably wrap up because my cats are wanting to be fed <laughs> as well. And we've been almost an hour and a half, but two things I'll mention and we can just pick up maybe, maybe we can pick up or maybe we, uh, next time, but like, 
Um, right after that is an amazing couple of paragraphs where Loon in the days after that, where he really immerses himself in making the tools of art. So yeah. that it's not just about making art, but making the tools that make the art is itself an art and itself gives you joy and it is itself an interesting project, which I feel also is just an, a kind of a profound artist statement from a man who writes outside every day for like three hours yeah, in the same yeah. exact seat, uh, presumably, you know, on the same software <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing that I find is kind of maddening is like, um, you know, we're just given the same compute, like standardization of computers and software to, to write our things. Not, you know, you could pick your the right pen if you're going to be writing out longhand, but that's an amazing couple of, of paragraphs of him like napping the blades in specific ways and being frustrated by it. And then the other thing I was going to mention is the character of Pippi, Pippilote who's the wanderer who brings news from afar and kind of is a kind of agent of exchange as well between different packs during the rest of the year who has the coolest story ever that he tells. Um, awesome story. Just like what a Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, quality. <laughs> like I, as a traveler, I met a traveler and this traveler had been to a far land and this traveler told me a story. And now I'm telling it to you. Like, it's just fantastic. So cool. Um, but oh, yeah. that, but that, that again, as another practice of art making that, um, you know, extends just sort of, you know, not only the knowledge of the world uh, and not only preserves mm -hmm. knowledge about the world, but that, um, you know, like the like the eight eight festival puts you in communion with people who aren't there um and lets you know that there are other things outside of your limited experience um that um yeah that there's another world out there and just i mean and and just like um you know just as we see in this section that like these are people who are figuring out like how to have a calendar Mm -hmm. um, because it's important and also because it's interesting. Um, you know, part of Pippi's story is also about figuring out that the world is probably round, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and that like, or that, or simply that it's too big for any one person to like, it's so big. You can't even believe it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, and again, then the sort of idea about like, um, uh, it just keeps going on forever. It's bigger than any man can walk in one life. Possibly it just keeps going on forever. Possibly our mother earth is round. He said then like a pregnant mm. woman or like the moon. And if you walk long enough, you would come around to where you started, assuming the great salt sea did not stop you. So like, you know, this is, this is both like the poem is also like a way of starting to make a map too. Oh my God. We didn't even talk about that. One of the things they do at the eight, eight festival is to make like three dimensional um, maps. We see it in the, we see it this in more detail, I think later on, not in the, not in the, I don't think spread. Yeah. I don't think we saw it in this chapter. They, me they mention it because Loon, they do? They, oh, okay. yeah. Cause Loon is like, I, oh, I can't even do the bird's eye maps. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, I must've missed that part. We'll talk, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. It's just an awesome part. Yeah. It's another, it's just like another, like, um, uh, 
it's this other really beautiful like moment in which we're seeing that like the process of producing knowledge and the process of producing art the process of understanding things and the processes of making things like those are not separate from each other like these are mm -hmm. all all of these practices are about like world world making and world under world understanding um mm -hmm. uh and i love that like pippi is introduced as this kind of like wild card too you know yeah. like uh maybe got an eye for the ladies but we don't really know um you know a wanderer who also misses his pack he has somewhat different rituals from them but he can talk to everybody even though he has some different words that he uses right um, yeah great he's great. a travel he's a traveling man he's a traveling he's man a, a woman him. in every port <laughs> he's a rambling man um okay let's wrap that up and then we'll pick up um so we've gotten most of the way through um hunger spring next it's, time under the ice is a pretty long it's like 70 pages and then if we were to do that with hunted that would be like 130 pages so maybe we'll try to do that but um there's still a couple of threads in under the ice that i wanted to just mention uh yeah. on the next one and then we'll definitely do we'll read under the ice and hunted for next time and see how far we get yeah yeah and we should just mention that Luna and Elga have a baby and that's where this ends. Yes, Luna and Elga have a baby. <laughs> and um yes, and and they also have uh lots of dirty sex. Yes, lots the of woods. Sex. Um, which I think is cool and worth uh thinking about and talking about, but um I'm a, you know, I'm a I'm a shy uh, repressed boy and I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to... Well, it's time to feed the cats. So, it's embarrassing. You know. Yeah, it's uh, I got to feed the cats. So. <laughs> I don't have time to talk about it. I like actually like one part was funny was when they first had go off from the dance to have sex. They have to like walk around the shitting grounds. Yeah. And I was like, how romantic. <laughs> like when we think about, you know, when we think about like this amazing rendering of the of the deep human past, um, and we talk about how it's at once invite, inviting in many ways, but not romantic at all. That's one of the ways it's not romantic. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. And I think it's very like, um, you know, the book is really committed to like, um, just trying to like capture a whole way of life, which includes mm -hmm. obviously like you got to poop someplace. You yep. Know? Yep. There's no indoor plumbing folks. <laughs> okay. With that, um, Thank you for listening. Yes, uh, thank you. Email us. No one listens to the end. I should do these. Uh, no one finishes uh, an episode hardly at all based on our statistics from Anchor FM. So we should always, we should actually mention that our Twitter handle is at podcast on Mars and that our Gmail account is maroon on Mars podcast at gmail.com. We should mention those things at the beginning of the episode rather than the end of the episode. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So we'll do that next time. And we uh, should be better at promoting ourselves. Well, I mean, that's the only way forward uh at least for me professionally is i have to start <laughs> four more podcasts and get a thousand people to give me one dollar each uh for each of them yeah oh yeah it's a great idea because i can't do anything else okay thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening goodbye happy birthday stan happy birthday stan bye bye, bye.